I want to thank everybody for coming uh, today. The um, first part we did last Sunday, and uh, this is in uh, honor of uh, Cam, and if you missed the first part, it's on the audio, the church audio website, and kind of went into a little bit of story behind uh, Cam. He was a patient of ours, and he, he passed away, and and um, so this is the second. This is the second part of this um, the series, and the third part will not be memorial, but the following. This is a quick synopsis of last uh, week, and we we talked about you know approaching faith through an evidence-based um, you know method instead of always you know you got to have faith, got to have faith. You know what if we based it on evidence? And so we looked at we looked at the historical scientists. Um, we didn't spend enough time on him, to be honest with you. We could have spent two hours, easy. But the, the point there is to add some more evidence um, to, our, to our bucket. We talked about Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, uh, Bacon, Newton, Mendel. And these are just big-time um, historical um, scientists. And they all had such incredible Christian uh, faith. And, and to me, that's pretty amazing because you would think that these scientists who made all these incredible discoveries would be the first ones to be able to tell us that God doesn't exist. It's, it's not, not true. And so that's a huge, a huge point to take these, you know, incredibly smart historical scientists and um, search and look at what they believed and why they believed. And then we looked at some of the historical theologians, Augustine, and how important he is in helping us interpret the Bible. St. Thomas Aquinas, and in that St. Thomas Aquinas is uh, where we kind of jumped into this reason topic because that was his big area, and that he took it from a mathematical geometry theorem angle, and there was four of the five the five points there why God exists, and how he used the ability uh, to reason to uh, grow his faith. We were able to mix scripture in with that. And um, Cameron just finished giving a, a three-part series on heaven. And Cameron was talking about his ideal heaven would be golf and the most incredible snow skiing. And so we all have our ideal heaven. But to me, I was thinking, how amazing would it be to sit in a room at a table with Copernicus, Galileo, Mendel, who's the father of genetics, uh, Bacon, Newton on one side, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul on the other side, and then maybe like C.S. Lewis, and just hear these guys just talk. It would just that would just totally blow me away. Um, then we talk about one author, the book, the book of Scripture, and and the book of of nature. And so it's it's a circular thing where um, God didn't give us just the book of Scripture, and He didn't give us this incredible world that we live in that we're just now trying to figure out and he didn't give us our incredibly well-designed you know bodies without the ability to reason so he's given us the ability to reason so we can understand his scripture so we can understand try to discover our bodies and try to discover his world and then it leads you back to him again and it just builds on the faith so to me it's a pretty pretty amazing that he um you know his his plan there. When you think about it, is pretty amazing. And we talk about this leap of faith. You know that was a term that was coined back in the Middle Ages, and it's almost, in a way, could be almost to me offensive to God because He's given us the ability of reason. He's given us the Book of Scripture, and He's given this incredible world to to live in. And it's like, well, you know, what else more should we should we need? And so we talked about how a baby takes their first step. They they take uh, they leave off their hand off the coffee table and they take a baby step and we can always remember when our child took the first step and for us it really should be just a baby step 
So he knew what he was doing. It was a marvelous plan. He, um, he even gave us his only begotten son. So that's, that's even the next step. Okay, the ability of reason, the incredible world, our incredible bodies, which is going to be part three, going over the anatomy and physiology and his scripture. And then he's like, okay, what else can I give him? And so he ends up giving us his only begotten son. So therefore, with the above evidence, it takes more faith to be an atheist. And when you look at this and you look at the evolution and the miracles, I'm going to go ahead and apologize because the next part is probably too much, but we'll try to fly through it. But it's looking, all the, looking at all the evidence and it builds on each other, it takes more faith to be an atheist. And I think at the end of the third series, you know, it'd be hard for me to believe that when someone, you would look at all this and go, goodness gracious, you know, how can you be an atheist with all this uh, evidence? Um, so this is the picture we showed last time. You know, kind of kind of crazy. Doesn't even look like he's going to make it. And then this is Paul again. Paul says, this is Romans, for since the creation of the world's God's invisible quality, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And that kind of really hammers it home. He's like saying, okay, folks, there's no excuse here. So, again, a lot of slides to get through. I'll, I'll try to highlight some. But um, to me, there, there's so many important slides. Um, and again, we could probably put, spend you know, five hours just on this topic. The Edge of Evolution, Modern Christian Scientists, and the Scientific Basis of Miracles. So this was in the Birmingham News. 30, 37% believe uh, uh, humans believe that creatures evolved over time. It's a scientific fact. 33% believe humans and other living things were created in the current form from the beginning, just like it says in the Bible. 30% believe evolution in the form of natural selection may have occurred, but it was with the help of a supreme you know, being. Um, as, a, as, a quick, as a quick aside, you know, last week we talked about Timothy Keller, and he, he was talking about the spread of Christianity. And I won't read the whole, the whole topic, but he was talking about the spread of Christianity, especially in, um, in Africa. And um, there, are six, there are six times more Anglicans in Nigeria alone than there are in all the United States. There are more Presbyterians in Ghana than the United States and Scotland combined. Korea has gone from 1% to 40% Christian uh, in 100 years, and experts believe that the same thing is going to happen in China. If there are half a billion Chinese Christians 50 years from now, that will change the course of, the, of human history. And I, I won't read this, but I'm probably the only one that gets the Birmingham news. But in this last uh, last you know Wednesday, there's there's an article that talks about you know this a recent um, a study that was done, and it talks about how there was this decrease in uh, in Christianity, uh, like in, in Alabama and like in the in the Deep South. And so, anyway, if you get a chance, 12% of Alabamians claim to be religious nuns. And um, so, it, when I think about, you know, the, the decrease in Christianity in our homeland, but the increase over in Africa, you know, as, a, as the advent, one area is right to have incredible growth. But then here we've got definitely some work. Anyway, I encourage you guys to read that, read that article. You know, you think about Africa when Jesus died in 33 A.D., Paul died in 68 A.D., but Christianity was the number one religion in like the fourth century, which was which was 300. 
So you go 68 to 300, that's what, I don't know, maybe 200 years or so. And if we're living 80, 90, some of us might live to 100 years, you know, what's going to happen in Africa is, is really exciting. So I just throw that out there um, as, a, as a thought. So Darwin said uh, agnostic would be the most correct description of my state of mind. Um, he was on the voyage of the Beagle. This was the ship that five years in South America, Galapagos Islands. All, and, and so the, he wrote The Origin of Species, A Theory of Evolution. All species of life have descended over time from common ancestors. Concept of natural selection in certain environmental conditions, some organisms will be better adapted than others because of random variation, and they will leave more offspring in the next generation. And that's just the typical... Um, we we were there at the Galapagos and spent some time, and, and it truly is. I mean, you'll see finches that have bigger beaks, longer beaks than others because they live on a different island where the soil is very hard, and they've adapted to get the insects um, because of that. So natural selection there. You guys have probably heard of Thomas Huxley. He was the biologist, Darwin's bulldog, coined term agnostic. He was often combative. He debated with Lord Bishop of Oxford, Samuel Wilberforce. So although some argue that Darwinism undermined Christianity, many others, Robert Chambers, Asa Gray, saw evolution as a consistent with the divine plan and even as proof of divine purpose in the world. And so I think that's an important fact to remember, is that how do we know that, that, that parts of evolution, if they are true, weren't God's plan anyway? So Augustine, again, this is like well before um, well before Darwin, and, and when we read this paragraph, it's really pretty pretty amazing. God created all things in the beginning, some actually and some potentially the latter as seed-like principles which later develop in mature creatures, much as a seed develops into a mature plant, maintaining that God's creative activity is truly completed in the beginning, and yet taking full account of observation on common sense notions regarding the development of natural things. So kind of fast, but... Doesn't that sound like this sort of natural selection, Darwin kind of idea? And to me, it was like uh, um, Augustine was saying, okay, heads up, don't be fooled. He was one step of Darwin before we knew about Darwin. And so I think it's, I think it's important that that truly was a part of his writing there. And so we think about, okay, why did this whole evolution thing become you know, what it is? And why is it so controversial? And so we have to back up and use this term called paradigm pressure. Unusual closeness of relationship between a scientific theory and a worldview does not determine whether that theory is true or false. What it does mean, however, is that there may be some, so much a prior philosophical pressure from the reigning naturalist or materialistic paradigm that aspects of the theory may not be subjected to the wide-range rigorous self-critical analysis, which is, should be a characteristic of all science. And so that the concern there is that uh, we, when we look back at this, what was going on socially, what was going on, you know, post-Reformation, and and um, you know he comes back from the Galapagos, and this just gets, you know, all this uh, attention. It was kind of ripe to maybe take off. So we shouldn't put evolution on a pedestal. It, it could, it's a part of God's plan. And and so when we think about evolution and we compare it to the rigor of scientific studies now. If evolution was discovered in 2015 and held to the high, high standard of evidence-based medicine that we have today, evolution would never have been so controversial, but just another sentence in a textbook. And, so, and, I, and I say that uh, because the way we pull things apart and we analyze things now, and as we go through the fossil record, 
the transitional species, the molecular basis of evolution, the DNA of evolution in a little while, you can see why that I feel that that statement is justified. So the edge of evolution, the limits of evolution, microevolution, there's, there's microevolution, there's micro, and then there's macro. Microevolution, the selection mechanism, which can, say, reasonably account for variations of a finch beak lengths or the development of antibiotic-resistant bacteria, but it can't account for the existence of finches and bacteria in the first place. In other words, is there an edge of evolution? No convincing data to show that macroevolution, large changes from one species to another, lizard to a cat, is simply the cumulative outcome of microevolution, or it is a different mechanism. Microevolution looks adaptive, that it concerns only the survival of the fittest, not the arrival of the fittest. And this is this group of uh, um, scientist here. Uh, B, he's a, he's a Catholic, he's a biochemist. Um, there are limits to natural selection and mutation can do. Life is bursting with features that give us impressive list of elegant control systems or genetic regulatory networks which are involved in the construction of animal bodies. This is to infer that they did not arise as a result of Darwinian process. Um, this is uh, Frederick Hoyle, he's a mathematician, astronomer. Um, he, his conclusions to his mathematical arguments is characteristically blunt. Well, his common sense would suggest the Darwinian theory is correct in the small, but not in the large. Rabbits come from other slightly different rabbits, not from primeval soup or potatoes. <laughs> so, if we, so we look at the fossil record. You know, when you say, oh, okay, well, evolution is, is, the fossil record supports evolution. But when you look at it, is that really the truth? Wesson and others to the effect that the fossil record gives no good examples of a macroevolution. This will sound surprising to me, people, since there's a widespread public opinion that one on the most powerful evidence of evolution comes from the fossil record. And yet this impression does not correspond to all that is be found in the scientific literature. At the onset, some of Darwin's strongest objectors were paleontologists. Darwin himself gives us this reason. It concerns the absence of the traditional forms of the fossil record which this theory led him to suspect. So this is actually Darwin's quote from his book. The number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed on the earth should be truly enormous. And so we think about it, and we'll show a slide in a little bit how a turtle is going to get to a human. You know, there's, there's the fossil record, um, the, the data is not there to support that. And even Darwin was spooked by that because he is saying, truly enormous. Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology um, assuredly does not reveal any such graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. So this is a zoologist. The fossil record of evolutionary change within a single evolutionary lineage is very poor. Evolution is, is true. Species originate through changes of ancestral species. One might expect to be able to see this in the fossil record. And in fact, it can be rarely seen. In 1859, Darwin could not cite a single example. And then it even gets worse. More so, the paleontologist David Roop of the Field Museum of Natural History, which houses one of the largest fossil collections in the world, said, we are now about 120 years after Darwin and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. Well, that's great. But we, we now have a quarter of a million fossil species, but the situation hasn't changed much. The record of evolution is still surprisingly jerky, and ironically, we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. So why, why shouldn't we you know, look, at the, look at the evidence? This goes into the problem with the evolution in terms with the paleontologists. 
We paleontologists have said that the history of the supports the story of gradual adaptive change, knowing all the while it doesn't. But why? What conceivable reason could there be for members of an academic community to suppress what they know to be the truth unless it were something which supported a, supported a worldview which they had already decided was unacceptable? And so there's that fear of, you know, the worldview is evolution, evolution. But they're saying as a group, it just doesn't, there's no data there. But it's sort of that paradigm pressure. And so um, they're trying to find a reason maybe not to believe. Um, Lennox, we talked about Lennox, he, uh, mathematician, current scientist. One cannot be wondering if his aforementioned fear of divine footprint is playing a key role, and the materialistic prejudice is overriding common sense. This is another paleontologist. The history of most fossil species, including two features particularly inconsistent with the idea that they gradually evolved, stasis and sudden appearance. Stasis. Most species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on Earth. They appear in the fossil record looking pretty much the same as when they disappear. Sudden appearance. In any local area, a species does not arise gradually. By the steady transformation of its ancestors, it appears only all at once and fully formed. You know, and it makes you wonder, well, that's because God created it that way. Despite the weakness of evidence, Darwin's theory was elevated from what was in reality a highly speculative hypothesis into an unchallenged dogma in a space of little more than 20 years. So we look at this, you know, again, the fossil records, how do you get from a fish to a mammal? All the incredible transitional species that we need. And then you look at it from just a different perspective. I mean, look at, look at this turtle. I mean, how many of us have seen a turtle, especially when we were growing up, and you look at the back of a turtle shell and you go, that is just amazing. I mean, look at how it's, it's you know, um, the colors and, and the whole creature itself. And how many of us have caught a bluegill in your life? You know, with all the different colors of pink and purple down here and the stripes and this bird with the red feathers and all the different colors of green, the whale, and then the human with the brain and the ability to reason. And when you look at that slide, you think it, it's just each one of those had to be designed. And the fossil record doesn't prove otherwise. So we're lacking millions of transitional species. There's no records. What about survival of the fittest and transitional forms? Can they fly yet? So think about that when a turtle goes to a reptile. Somehow it had to have start growing something to develop a wing to fly. Well, wouldn't that have put it at a, a serious disadvantage, survival of the fittest? How, how could it have even gotten past the point of some embryology of a uh, wing that would have inhibited it to survival? And then um, when we think of mutations, we think of mutations as not being a good thing, you know, mutation, a cancer and all. How could have all of these been so many incredible positive mutations along the way to have created you know, a human being, for example. Why is the cheetah not going faster? If there's survival of the fittest, I mean, I, part of it, sure, a, a, a finch having stronger and longer beaks, but why, why aren't cheetahs getting faster and faster and faster? How do you get from a scale to a feathers? It's just, it's just at a molecular basis, which we're going to get into, it's just totally different. Um, this is a scientist, Denton. Altogether, uh, all and actually, he is an atheist. Altogether, it adds up to enormous conceptual difficulty to envision how a reptile could have been gradually converted into a bird. How did macroevolution happen? So, some of you guys are familiar with William Paley. He was a natural theologist, and he his um, brings up the idea where if you're walking on the beach and you find a watch, 
and you pick up the watch and you look at it and you open it and it's got a face and it's got the arms and you open it up and it's got the cog and it's got the wheel and you think, yeah, somebody designed that. Somebody had to design that for a purpose. And so it's, it's, the, way, um, it's the way when we look at this evidence um, that you look at this uh, how things must have been designed and then you think of the purpose of the watch is to tell us time. God had his uh, purpose also. So we think of a skateboard, a toy wagon, a bicycle, a motorcycle, an automobile, an airplane, a jet plane, and a space shuttle. And so those are all types of transportation. And they're all in, in lined up in order of complexity. But that doesn't mean that a toy wagon evolved into a bicycle and then this evolved into a jet plane. You know, somebody maybe took the idea of transportation, but somebody had to figure out how to make a motor, had to design the motor. Somebody had to design part of the airplane to, to turn it into a space shuttle. Somebody had to make the new part and alter the factory. So design is, you know, we, it's easy for us to un understand that as design, but it just seems like sometimes folks have a hard time understanding the ability that we have to reason, and we have scripture, and we have the world, and we have uh, our incredible bodies, and how that is just the same sort of design paradigm. Um, I think because of time, I better go through some of this quickly. This is uh, two terms that are important, though, anthropic and teleology. Anthropic, the idea that our universe is uniquely tuned to give rise to humans. Stephen Hawkins, A Brief Time in History, you know, the movie just came out, he's an atheist. So in his book, Brief Time in History, it would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as the act of God who intended to create beings like us. Teleology, the doctrine that there is a design, a purpose, or a finality in the world that affects or in some manner intentionally and in that no complete account of the universe is possible without reference to final cause. So it's just the design concept and the design, but also we're here for a purpose. Um, this is a term that, that, that's important because it fits into the evidence. And it, it's a term that's important because evolution has a hard time figuring out what to do with this term. Irreducible complexity. It's a single system composed of several well-matched interacting parts to contribute to the basic function wherein the removal of one of the parts causes the system to eff effectively cease functioning. And that's a mousetrap. And so I bought a mousetrap. <clears throat> so when you think of this, you've got this piece of wood, which I guess is the base. You have this piece, which is, I don't know what it's called. I guess it's called a hammer, which sounds kind of mean, but that's the hammer. And then this piece has the peanut butter on it. And then you've got this, you know, the spring. And if you take, you know, how did this piece get, uh, how did this piece evolve into this piece? And how did this piece evolve into this piece? You know, it didn't. It, it, it was designed. And so that's what this term is talking about. It's hard for us to get any kind of picture of the seething, dizzyingly complex activity that occurs inside a living cell, which contains within its lipid membrane maybe 100 million proteins of 20,000 20, different types, and yet the whole cell is so tiny that a couple of 100 could be placed on the dot in the letter I. The flagellum discovered in 1973 has a tiny acid-driven motor that powers the bacteria and allows it to swim. The motor is so small that 35,000 laid into den would take up one millimeter, consists of some 40 proteins, protein parts, including a rotor, a stator, bushings, and drive shaft. And Behe, who's a, a, a biochemist, um, states that the, and he's also a Catholic, states that the absence of any one of these protein parts would result in complete loss of a motor function. 
that no irreducibly complex system can be produced directly, that is by continuously improving the initial function which continues to work by the same mechanism by slight successful modifications of a precursor system. Because any precursor to any irreducible complex system that is missing a part is by definition non-functional. There are only two articles published in, that have attempted to suggest how the flagellum evolved and they both disagree. You know? So people um, are just amazed about the human eye. And in part three, we'll talk about the human eye. When you think about the human eye and all the different parts to the human eye, and when you look at it, this is what this is when would folks talk about the evolution of the eye, and 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 how to speculate how the evolved eye. You get words like the development of lens and camera types probably followed a different trajectory, may have originated with the shedding of the skin, intracellular fluid may have infilled. Note that the optical layout has not been found, nor is it expected to be found. Oops. So this is the eye. We'll talk about it in the part three. You know, you got the pupil, you got the retina, you got the lens. And when you look at all this, you know, when you and you talk about that term and you talk about evolution, it makes you really appreciate how that how that had to be designed. It's obvious that the existence of irreducible complex biological machines would present a formidable challenge to evolutionary theory. And so here, here's Darwin is saying again. You know, Darwin, I think he 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 kind of presented his information and put it out there. But it really wasn't Darwin who just kind of made it become so much greater than it, than it was. I mean, he was kind of more of a humble person. His wife actually was a, was a Roman Catholic, and which was really um, you know, difficult for him. And so here again, Darwin is saying, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successful slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Darwin said, the eye to this day gives me a cold shudder. The design is so perfect. You know, and it's not like somebody's making that up. Darwin, who discovered evolution, is actually telling us, you know, that. There is no publication in the scientific literature, in prestigious journals, specialty journals, or books that describe how molecular evolution of any real complex biochemical system either did occur or even might have occurred. There are assertions that such evolution occurred, but absolutely none is supported by pertinent experiments or calculations despite comparing sequences and mathematical modeling. So we've gone from from the fossil record and, and we're getting into molecular evolution. What's, what's going on at the molecular level? Despite comparing sequences and mathematical modeling, molecular evolution has never been addressed has never addressed the question of how complex structures came to be to be. In effect, the theory of Darwinian molecular evolution has not been published, and so it should perish. And so again, where you need to compare this to our 2015 standards and look at the data. Uh, and, and make it and compare this to the rigor that we would to any, of any study now. Um, <clears throat> again, because of time, I'll, I won't spend too much time on this. Can the universe create itself? So we've gone from fossil records to molecular evolution to this uh, topic of can the universe create itself? Scientists, so the argument goes, might be very clever explaining this and that. They might even be able to explain everything within the physical universe. But at some stage in the chain of explanation, they will reach an impasse, a point beyond which science cannot penetrate. The point is the creation of the universe as a whole, the ultimate origin of the physical world. And we talk about down here, why do these laws, ha um, why do the laws um, have, uh, have the forms they do? Might have they been otherwise? Where do these laws come from? 
Do they exist independently of the physical universe? And the answer can be found in Kent Thorne's hymn, 1796. Praise the Lord, for he has spoken. Worlds his mighty voice obeyed. Laws which never shall be broken, for their guidance he hath made. So we can probably look and, and search and, and try to beat our heads up against the wall, and there's no problem with that, but this is going to be the answer, the ultimate answer down there. This was a 22-year-old graduate student. Stanley Miller conducted a famous experiment. Um, and so he, in the laboratory, passing electrical discharges through a chemical mixture stimulating what was thought to be the atmosphere of the early Earth. How did the atmosphere of the early Earth get there to begin with? But after two days, Miller found a 2% yield of amino acid. Uh, that's, that's worrisome. So maybe, you know, the Big Bang and all that did happen. But the atmosphere more likely consisted of nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and water vapor. There's also evidence of significant amounts of free oxygen. Since there are theoretical and practical reasons why amino acids cannot be formed in such an atmosphere, the presence of oxygen, for example, would inhibit the production of crucial biomolecules and even degrade such that, that did exist. In short, then the evidence suggests that the atmosphere of the early Earth would actually have been hostile to the formation of amino acids. Amino acids make proteins, proteins make tissues, tissues make organs, organs make up the human body. So um, this goes into how even more complex it gets um, in that there are um, the, the probability of getting 100 amino acids in the correct order would be 1 to the 20th 100 power, which is about 1 in 10 to the 120, vanishingly small. And that is only the, only the start, very modest start of that, for these calculations concern only a single protein, yet life as we know requires hundreds of thousands of proteins and has been calculated the odds against producing these by chance is more than 10 to the 40,000. Sir Fred Hoyle, famous, um, he's, uh, I think he's an uh, astronomer, compared these odds against the spontaneous formation of life with the chance of a tornado sweeping through his junkyard and producing a Boeing 747 jet aircraft. So uh, Richard Dawkins, you know, I've read a couple of his books. You know, why not? You've got to make give everybody a fair chance. So he's the big atheist. He's the, he's considered an evangelical atheist. He's not he's not happy with him being an atheist. He wants you to be an atheist. It is grindingly, creakingly, crashingly, obviously that if Darwinism were really a theory of chance, it couldn't work. You don't need to be a mathematician or a physicist to calculate that an IR hemoglobin molecule would be taken from here to infinity to self-assemble by sheer higgly-piggly luck. Um, this is more scientific, how complex science is. He's a theoretical physicist. A marksman would need to hit a coin at the far side of the observable universe 20 billion light years away for life to exist on Earth. You have to, you have to meet all these just amazing parameters. Um, Sir, he's an astronomer. Hoyle confessed that nothing has shaken his atheism as much as this discovery. Even this degree of fine-tuning was enough to persuade him that it has looked as if a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are, so, there are no blind forces in nature without, without talking about. Um, he goes on to say that the relative values of the great constants of physics are, are determined. They have the values that they do because if they did not, we would not be here. And then you go back to scripture again. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers of the works of your hands. You put everything under, under their feet. So that's that 
anthropic term and teleology term right there in, in scripture. There's a reason, there's a design and a purpose. This is a newer scientist that de- developed a laser who, who is Christian. Who, um, who can fail to be amazed at the homing instincts of a, of a pigeon, the migratory instinct of the Beswick swan, the eco-locator system of the bat, the blood pressure control center in the brain of the giraffe, and the muscles in the neck of a woodpecker, to mention but a few of unending lists that is being added to every day. The living world is simply replete with mechanisms of mind-bending complexity for the human mind. Anyway, we're just trying to figure this out, but, you know... Um, 22 conditions that must be, let for, must be met for life. The planet must produce visible and ultraviolet light. It must have an atmosphere that transmits light but not x-rays or extreme UV light. There must be liquid water. There must be carbon. It must be able to live a long time. The output of energy must be not, not very rapid. The planet must be in a suitable zone of distances from the sun. It must have land. It must not suffer excessive and prolonged bombardment of meters. And the list goes on and on and on. I had to throw this in. The views of most physicists and astronomers remained closer to that of St. Augustine, who asked himself what God was doing before he made heaven and earth. He gave the reply. He was, he was creating hell for people who asked questions like that. <laughs> Robert Jastro, he's a, a Christian God, and he's an astronomer. Now we see how the um, astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. So we talked about using our ability to reason, to look at all the evidence, make our strong faith stronger. They're using the term reason in terms of being reason. Everything is science. Everything is science. Science has an answer to everything. Um, so again, this is getting into the genetic, the DNA, at the DNA level. We went from fossils to the, the molecular basis to transitional forms to irreducible complexity. And then we could even spend hours and hours on the genetic part. Um, this talks about um, familiar, uh, he makes an important observation that will be familiar to mathematicians. The simple fact that species can be classified hierarchically into gen- genera, families, and so on is not argument for evolution. It's possible to classify any set of objects into a hierarchy, whether their variation is evolutionary or not. Cars, for instance, can be arranged in hierarchy. You know, you can have a Volkswagen Bug, you can have a Buick, you can have a Tahoe, you can have a Suburban. But all cars have similar parts because those parts are essentially for their operation because they are constructed according to a common design, not because they have descended from each other. So, indeed, the common ancestry might have been designed. So each car doesn't necessarily get evolved on its own. Um, they had to be designed. This is Frank Collins. Um, he's a current scientist. He wrote The Language of God. It's a, it's a good book. You guys would like it. He is now the director of the NIH. He was the, uh, in charge of the Genome Project. It was, it was just huge. 
like um, how many um, hundreds and hundreds of um, geneticists across the whole world that recently were able to map the whole human genome. And he was in charge of that. And now he's the director of the NIH, budget of 30 million, and 209 Pope Benedict, um, what is that, 16th appointed columns to the uh, Pontifical Academy of Science. So that's a pretty, car, pretty, pretty hardcore um, scientist. Why is Collins a man with all this incredible scientific knowledge, also a man of unshakable faith in God and scripture? What does he know that other scientists don't know? You know, when we look at Newton and Copernicus and Galileo, and then we've got somebody like this who's the director of the NIH, you would think that those would be the people that would be able to stand up and say, you know, we got the answers. You know, they're just, the science has all the answers. You know, there's no such thing as God. But that's not true. It's the, it's the opposite. And it makes you, it makes, it makes it so much more credible, so much more evidence when you hear that from somebody who knows the deep, you know, uh, molecular level of DNA. We don't have time to go into, into the DNA and all, but to really appreciate how amazing, how amazing complicated it is, which adds more and more um, evidence. There are 30,000 genes in the human body. This was talking about the genome, the genome project. Uh, sifting through three billion bits of DNA, each human cell to map the ordering of all the human genes. This is from Frank, this is from Collins. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful, and it cannot be a war within itself. Only we imperfect humans start such battles, and only we can and only we can end them. He goes on to say, after considering all the scientific and spiritual evidence, one can make a strong case for seeing God. So he's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to look at this evidence. A strong case for seeing God's creative and guiding handwork at, hand at work. There is not a shred of disappointment or disillusionment in these discoveries about the nature of life. Quite the contrary. How marvelous and how intricate life turns out to be. How deeply satisfying is the digital elegance of DNA how aesthetically appealing and artistically sublime are the components of living things, from the ribosome that translates RNA into the protein to the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into the butterfly, to the fabulous plumage of the peacock attracting its, its mate. Evolution as a mechanism can be and must be true, but that says nothing about the nature of its author. For those who believe in God, there are reasons down to be in more, all, not less. So again, just reiterate, this is coming from somebody who's the director of the NIH. One would think that a scientist of this caliber could find more scientific evidence against God rather than finding so much for at a scientific level, not scriptural. So he, he's, a sci he's a scientist. Not, he's not like a theologian up, up there preaching. You know, he's a, actually a scientist. So when we think of evolution as a biological theory, um, sodium binds to, calcium, uh, to chloride. Hemoglobin carries oxygen. Photosynthesis is how plants convert sun to, to sunlight to energy. You know, it's, it's just another scientific theory, a part of God's plan. We've talked about six lines of evidence which show that natural selection could not have produced new life forms. We've talked about the genetic limits, irreducible complexity, the non-viable transitional forms, um, the molecular problem, in the fossil record. This is the, the uh, hemoglobin, how complex hemoglobin is, photosynthesis. So the take home message is, let's not make more than what uh, they are, unlike Dawkins and other atheists. Let's put evolution in its rightful place. Not make a principle of biological science and make it a universal principle. 
Use our ability to reason and, sub and subject evolution to the rigor of our current 2015 scientific standards. Should we not be spending more time on the evolution of our own spiritual path? Let's not be so arrogant just because we figured it out. Should we not be giving God the credit? He even took it one step further. Not only did he give us the ability to reason to understand his word, scripture, but to also to use uh, his, this ability to reason, discover his gorgeous world and figure out you know our bodies but he also gave us you know his son well five minutes on miracles is that okay all right um 123 miracles were noted in the bible 21 involved healing i won't go all over all of them but they're really cool a true miracle is an event in the external world brought about by the immediate agency or the simple violation of god operating without the use of means capable of being discerned by the senses and designed to authenticate the divine commission of a religious teacher and the truth of his message. And that's John Matthew. It is an occurrence at once above nature and above man. It shows the intervention of a power that is not limited by the laws either of matter or of mind, a power interrupting the fixed laws which govern their movements, a supernatural um, power. And so I think there's some important points in there that talks about you know the laws, but and we won't go into all these laws, but... This is Newton, first law, second law, third law, the science of miracles. We believe in the laws because because they um, we believe in the laws because they exist. So then we know when something is a miracle because it's outside the laws and we can't explain it. But we but we had to discover the first we had to discover the laws in the first place. So who made these laws? Um, it's not true that there are more laws out there than we have not discovered. So it just brings up the point that you know Newton and Einstein they delivered these laws and we're just, we're still discovering more and more laws. You know number one who who designed and created those laws that we're discovering, but number two, how many more laws are out there that we don't know about that that um, that's how miracles work. And Newton talks about this. I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. So Newton is saying, even though he's like so brilliant and made all these discoveries, he's saying, yeah, that's just like a pebble. There's so much more, so much more out there. So the, the point being is that um, when we gave this class to the high school students, I had one of them stand up on a chair, and they had an apple. And another one of the high school students called the apple. And so it's not that the law still exists, but a hand has altered its course. And C.S. Lewis talks about this. And so the high school students were able to see that the law still exists, gravity still exists, but there was a hand there that intervened. And so as humans, if we can grab an apple and intervene, and if the person who created these laws, why can't his intervene? Why can't his hand intervene? Why can't God's hand do the same if we can and if there is a law we have not yet discovered? And so this down here, you know, how many of us grew up watching 3D movies? None of us. Well, well now we're watching 3D movies. What about what about fourth dimension? What about fifth dimension? So there's, there's other laws out there that haven't been discovered that probably there's a good, good chance that, that, that God has already created. And so the other part about the miracles, not only that, but the credibility of the miracles is established by the evidence of the, of the senses on the part of those who are witnessed of them and to all others by the testimony of such witnesses. The witnesses were competent and their testimony is trustworthy. I mean, there were like 100, 150 people, you know, at these miracles. 
and Josephus, who was a historian back there. Matthew, Mark, Luke was a doctor. John and others. Paul was a lawyer. I mean, these aren't like dummy people that witnessed these miracles. They understood the laws of nature at that time. And it wasn't that they were like so dumb that they didn't understand it. But they, they knew that it was something different. Um, and then why would the disciples, and taking it one step further, the credibility. This is a great quote from Paul, but I won't go into it. Um, thanks to Cornelius' visit to Rome last year. This is where Paul, Paul's prison in Rome. And this is where he spent so much time writing Scripture, what, almost one-third of the New Testament. So 12 disciples and how they died. Peter crucified, Andrew crucified, James beheaded, John exiled, Philip crucified, Thomas speared to death. Man, that's terrible. Wouldn't you think that you, when you get down to right here, you go, nope, that's not for me. <laughs> you know. And so... Um, that it's, that is just so so strong. And then about how about how about Thomas? The night Jesus rose from the dead, Thomas told the other disciples, "Unless I see the marks on the nails in his hands and put my fingers in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe." <coughs> then Jesus said to Thomas, "Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe." Jesus had respect for Thomas's demand for evidence. And just like why we're here today, we are we are really. We've looked at a ton of evidence. Um, there was no expectation that the skeptical disciple should exercise blind trust in the absence of evidence. Thomas quickly responded with the words, My Lord and my God. Jesus then says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the first part of the sentence is for Thomas. Have you believed because you have seen me? The second part of the sentence is for us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We have the same evidence. We've just covered a ton today. We have the same evidence. <clears throat> but the second part is for us. Um, 33% of the world are Christians. This is just in terms of our faith and where we worship. St. Peter's, the five major basilicas. Can 33% of the world's population be wrong? 2.3% billion people. And I'll end, I'll end with this. I know it ran over, but I wonder why no matter where you go and find mankind, you will find that they seek something higher than themselves. Why is this? No other creature in science seems to do this. Maybe it's God and his desire to, to, to fellowship with mankind. So um, it just kind of gets us back to the initial point where we talk about God has given us the ability to reason, to understand the scripture, to understand his, his world, and to understand all this evidence that we've just talked about. But it's also, you know, the fire that we have inside us. How do we know it's not actually God and His desire with fellowship with us? You know, it's kind of that magnetism that He's given us um, all of this to to use, uh, and it makes our faith stronger, and it makes His fellowship stronger with us. So.